slowly becoming Bukharan. Because the first time I spoke here and he told me 8 o'clock, I was here at 5 to 8. There were people around here cleaning up. There was like a janitor here saying had to open the doors for me. I think the next time I came at 8.15, 8.30. Tonight, I came at 8.40. I thought, this is awesome. I'm going to walk in. We'll start the lecture about five minutes afterwards. We'll be fine. What is this, 9.15? Okay. <laughs> Evidently, my Germanic roots are still there. You know, so, uh, uh, so Shavuot is a uh, momentous occasion for a number, a number of reasons. I'd like to look into quite a few of the ideas, see how much we can cover uh, in the three minutes we have left. Um, and uh, so, uh, but in terms of, in terms of what, uh, what actually happened on Sinai, what we received on Sinai, what the whole idea of, what the, whole idea of, the, of the Torah is, and, uh, and this, whole, this whole event. The first time Sinai is mentioned is actually much even before the exodus from Egypt. We are told that Moshe had left Egypt and had gone to a place called Midian, and there he is a shepherd for his father-in-law Yitro. And while Moshe is taking the sheep out for a to pasture, he sees it says Vayarash. He sees something. He sees something off to the side. He looks to the side and he sees a burning bush. Sne boer. Sne, a bush. Sinai. Mount Sinai. Sneh, Samach Nun Hay, Sinai, Samach Yud Nun Yud. So he sees this bush, he turns his head to the side, he sees it burning, and he goes over there to investigate. And God speaks to him from the bush. And God says, you are going to take the Jews out of Egypt. And Moses' first response, I mean, if you would have any politician who would be hearing God tell them, you are going to be the man... They'd say, well, <laughs> duh, right? I mean, of, of course, right? What is the, what's the question here? Moses says, no, not me. He argues with God. He argues with God according to the Midrash for a week. I mean, you know, I mean, after a while, you know, you get tied out with arguing, you know what I mean? Sometimes just sheer persistence. You can argue with someone and you can give up after a while. But one week, and he's arguing, who's he arguing with? God, right? So he's arguing for one week with God. So, and all this is because he turned his head to the side and saw the bush. Interesting, I remember when I was in Yeshiva many years ago in Israel, rabbinical school in Israel, there was a rabbi there called Shlomo Fisher, who was the resident genius. He used to stand at the front and answer questions all day. So basically it was like instead of having um, a uh, Cray 2 supercomputer, CD-ROMs with all of Jewish literature on it, you had Rabbi Fisher. So I had a question which I thought was a good question on the Gemara. And I went over to him, a little nervous. I went over to Rav Fisher, Rav Shlomo Fisher, and I said, uh, excuse me, I'd like to ask a question. He says, go ahead. You know. So I asked him a question on the, on the Gemara, on the piece of Talmud that we were learning. And he looks at me and he says, what's your name? I said, Becher. I thought, no, he's going to remember. It was an awesome question. He says, uh, he says Becher. He said, let me ask you something. Why did God speak to Moses? I said, what, what, this had nothing to do with what we were studying. Nothing. Random. Like totally drive-by comment. Right? What is it? So he says, what did, why did God speak to Moses first time? I said, I, I, I don't know. I, I said, I think the Medrash says, because he turned to the side. It says, Vayar Hashem, God saw that he turned his head to the side. He saw that he turned his head. So Rabbi Fisher asked me, what would have happened 
had Moses not turned his head to the side? What would have happened? I said, I, don't, I guess God wouldn't have spoken to him. He said God would have chosen someone else, and that would have been the end of Moses. would have been a shepherd in Midian. A very good shepherd, but a shepherd in Midian. So he said, we see, and I'm, I'm wondering, where the heck is he going with this? Right? What's he talking about? Like, this is nothing to do with what I asked. So he says, what we see from here is the importance of turning your head to the side. I said, right. I said, right. Right. And he says, he says the following. If you would have turned your head to the side of the page of Talmud that you were studying, you would have seen a commentary called A Mishpat that references you to Maimonides from the Talmud. I said, uh-oh, I'm thinking, uh, I, think, I can't know where he's going with this. He says, had you bothered to turn your head to the side, look at that commentary, you would have then opened up a Maimonides, you would have looked in the Maimonides, and he explains the piece of Talmud that your question is on in beautiful, clear Hebrew, and he answers your question in the midst of his explanation. And you wouldn't have to waste my time. I said, oh my gosh, right. So that did not deter me from asking him afterwards, but it did teach me that I never went to him with another question before I'd searched absolutely everything that there was on the page. So what is the significance of this is the first event of Sinai. This is the lead up, the first event on that mountain, because that's the mountain where that bush was. That's the mountain that God said, you will take the Jews out of Egypt and you will come back to this mountain to Abduni Bahar Hazer and you will serve me on this mountain. So what's the lead up to it? Moses turns his head to the side. How do we, how do we understand that? That's like a strange thing. Okay, so you notice something on the side. Big deal. Right? When you're driving, you're supposed to scan side to side. You know, you're supposed to look front and right? The whole works. You, you look at the mirrors and stuff like that. That's like significant. The answer, I think, is the following. The first requirement to be a Jew who receives the Torah is if you have got your tunnel vision, you're focused, I am working now on, on, on a shepherd or a hedge fund manager or an accountant, or a lawyer, or a physician, or whatever it happens to be, right? And you can never turn your head to the side and look outside of that. You'll never get anywhere. You'll never get anywhere close to God. Because God wants someone who is able to look outside of the box, think outside the box. Had the Jews not thought outside the box, we wouldn't be here today. When you think about it, what we got on Sinai was the ultimate revolution ultimate revolution because it went against absolutely everything that the entire world believed in for thousands of years beforehand and the truth is for thousands of years afterwards so we are called ivrim that's one of the words for jews avraham ivri abraham the hebrew the term ivri means ever which means on one side right we are on one side the entire world is on the other side but for a jew to be a jew for us to receive the torah the very first step was Going outside your narrow vision, right, and just where the person's only involved in what can I do to make a crust, which is the term in Australia, right, what can I do to make some more money, what can I do to advance in my career, and they never look to the side, they never look to the side, and there's unbelievable stuff happening on the side, right, had he not looked to the side, he would have missed this burning bush, the snebo air, he would have missed God speaking to him, and that would have been the end of Moses, and it would have been a very, very different world for him and maybe for us had he not had that ability. So that is the first event of Har Sinai, the first event of Mount Sinai. What was the second event? 
The second event was God calls Moses and says, Moshe, Moshe. Moses, Moses, Moshe, Moshe. It's interesting. You find numerous times in the Torah that God calls people twice. Why is that? I mean, I know I call my kids usually about 12, 13 times. Right? I mean, this is, happens all the time. Rafi, Rafi, right, etc. Come down for dinner. Can't say anything. Rafi, there's dessert. Right, bingo, he's down. Right, but you call, right, you say, why is God repeating the name? Moshe, Moshe. He does it a few times. Avraham, he says, Avraham, Avraham. Moshe, Moshe, Yeshua, Yeshua. There's a few times God repeats names. And Moses' answer is, he says, uh, Moshe, Moshe. We'll talk about why he repeats the name. And Moshe's answer is Hineni. Hineni is the second event that comes from Moses. The first event is Moses turns his head to the side. He's able to get out of Wall Street. He was able to get out of his, whatever, the, shepherd, you know, the, the shepherd's world. And he's able to look to the side and notice something. And the second thing is, Moshe Rabbeinu says, Hineni, which means, Hineani, I am here. What does it mean, I am here? Right now, my eye, my essence, is focused on God. God called me, and my eye is focused on that. Hineni, I'm, I'm here. And then God tells him a very strange thing. What's the next thing that God tells him? Anyone know? Take off your shoes. That's the next thing. Take off your shoes. Don't, what are you doing? Take off your shoes. You're making a mess. Right? I just cleaned this mountain last week. <laughs> You're trampling around with the sheep and all the stuff that they, you know, whatever. Right? And you come up here with your filthy shoes. Right? This is what, what is he? Is Moses' mother here? What does it take off your shoes? Why is that so important? What is the significance of that? And that's not the only time we have it. When else do we take off shoes? Yom Kippur Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement we take off our shoes when else? the Kohen well you take off everything in the mikvah I mean it's like <laughs> you go in with nothing on just your boots no depends what's on the floor but okay right you don't want to know so okay but when else do we take when do we take our shoes off? a Kohen someone mentioned a Kohen priest goes into the temple right or they go up and give the blessing the bracha right they take off their shoes when else? An avel, a mourner, someone who is mourning for a close relative, is obligated to take off their shoes. By the way, the shoes we're talking about here are leather shoes. They can wear canvas or plastic or rubber. They cannot wear leather shoes. That's what we're taking off. And Tisha B'Av, the ninth of Av. One more place. Chalitza. What's Chalitza? Two brothers who were living at the same time. And one of them dies, and he doesn't have children. He dies without children. The his widow and his brother-in-law, there is a mitzvah, sorry, his widow and his surviving brother, there is a mitzvah, a commandment for them to get married. They have to get married. And it says they shall, and the child that shall be born to them, that child will be in the name of the deceased brother. What if he doesn't want to? What if he doesn't want to marry? He's, he always thought that his brother made a mistake. Right? Now he's going to inherit the mistake. Right? What? So he doesn't want to. For whatever reason, he doesn't want to. So she now takes his shoe off. There's a ceremony in baked in in the Jewish court called Chalitza, taking off the shoe. She takes off his shoe. And his house, he's now called the Karesh Mobi Israel. His name will be known amongst the Jews as Beit Chalutz Hanaal. What's that mean? The house without the shoe. Oh, that's terrible. Right. 
wouldn't like to be known as the house without the shoe. Why is that so important? Right? And by the way, that's also a leather shoe. Right? Not canvas. In Israel, they have these shoes called megaprim. When I, my first time I was in Israel, when I was, I think, 18, um, I went to a shoe store. I wanted these shoes because they're these canvas commando boots. You ever seen them? The, ca- the commando boots they have in Israel, made of canvas with these thick rubber soles. They're awesome. They're called Nale Megaprim, which means commando. Um, they used to use Hebrew in Israel. Now they refer to commando as commando, right? But it used to be called Megaprim. Unfortunately, my Hebrew was a little... I wasn't great. I just came to Israel. So I asked for Nale Mefagrim. Those who know Hebrew, that means retarded shoes. <laughs> so um, I go into the store and I'd say, I need Rotsay, Na'alei Mefagrim, Bevakashan. And the guy says, He calls over his friend and says, Boy, no. He says, Ask again. <laughs> so, you know, by the end of this, there's like eight people working in the store, right? Standing in front of me, I'm asking for these shoes. You know, it's like unbelievable. Okay. But I digress. So the significance of the shoe. Reb Chaim explains it in a very, very simple, beautiful way. You see, the two names of Moshe represents, represents the highest level of the soul because the highest level of our soul is not even here in this world. The highest level of the soul is on a higher plane, a spiritual world. The highest le- our soul has got many different levels, five different levels. Five different levels. The highest level of the soul is actually in a higher world. It's in a different existence. It's in a spiritual existence. It is connected connected to the lowest level. The lowest level of the soul, that's the soul, that's the soul which is in this world, in our body. So what does my body do? My body is the interface between the soul, which is spiritual, and the physical world, which is physical. Type of like when you have a modem. Right? So the modem is there to connect between a regular telephone line which is analog right and a computer which is digital on off on off on off one zero one zero right so you have to have an interface to join those two together so they can communicate with each other so for the soul which is totally spiritual to operate in a world which is totally physical it needs something to enable it to walk in this world it needs something to encase and protect the lowest level of the soul so that lowest level of the soul is able to walk in the physical world. Is this clear so far? So when God says Moshe, Moshe, he means two names. He means Moshe, the elevated highest level of the soul. And he means the Moshe who's right here. When he says Abraham, Abraham, he means the same thing. What's interesting is the Zohar says that when it says Abraham, Abraham, the tune makes a slight pause between the first Abraham and the second Abraham. But when we sing the Torah, Moshe, Moshe, there is no pause whatsoever between the first name Moshe and the second name Moshe. What's the significance of that? The Zohar says, because Moshe had no ego. So there was nothing to divide and separate between the Moshe here and the Moshe up above. Because he called himself, Nachnu Ma, we are nothing. Abraham, Abraham, as great as he was, and his greatness was beyond our imagination... But when he described himself, when he also argued with God, it's an old Jewish tradition, he also argued with God about Saddam, right? So, uh, it's an old Jewish tradition to argue. It says when they say two Gentiles are talking, one's talking, the other one's listening. Two Jews are talking, one's talking, the other one's just waiting. <laughs> it doesn't matter what you're saying, just waiting to argue. It's irrelevant. So, 
Moshe, Abraham rather, described himself as Anochi Afar Ve'efer. I am dust and ashes. Dust and ashes, admittedly, is a very... It's a level of humility which we, I wish we could all get to. But it's something, isn't it? As opposed to nothing. It's something, it's not nothing. So therefore, the tune has a slight pause in between Abraham, Abraham. Moshe, Moshe, there's no pause. So, God tells Moses, I'm about to give you prophecy. I'm about to talk to you. Moshe, Moshe. I want the two to be connected. He says, you need to rise above the physical. So I want you to take off your shoe. What is the shoe? Think about it. We describe the soul, or the body rather. What does the body do? It encases, it covers the lowest level of the soul and enables it to walk in this world. What does a shoe do for the body? Same thing. Same thing. What the shoe does for the body, the body does for the soul. The shoe enables me and my delicate feet, more or less, right, to walk in this, in this world. It encases the lowest level of, my, of me, which is in contact with this world, and it allows me, helps me to walk, enables me to walk here. What the body does for the soul is exactly the same thing. The body is holy because the body enables the soul to act in this world. It enables the soul to walk in this world. It is, therefore, as the Kabbalists put it, Reb Chaim Velozhin puts it, he says, The body is the shoe of the soul. When God wants to tell us, hint to us, that we need to elevate beyond the merely physical, we need to relate on a spiritual level, we need to understand that our essence is spiritual, not physical. We are not merely a, an advanced animal. We are not merely a, a non-hairy ape. Right? Rather, we are a spiritual being. When God wants us to realize that, what does he tell us to do? Take off our shoes. Take off our shoes. Why at these places? Example. When it's Chalitza, he's saying this brother did not want to give an opportunity for his dead brother's soul to walk on this world. Because that's, that's what would have happened. Had he married his widow, the closest match spiritually to the brother was his wife. The closest physical match to the brother is the brother. When the brother and the widow have a child, that child would be an incarnation of the brother. His soul would have the opportunity to walk on this world. So he says, I don't want to give a shoe to my brother's soul. In other words, I don't want to, he's not prepared to do it for whatever reasons. So what do we do? We take, we say, what we're symbolically saying is, you don't deserve your own body. You don't deserve it. Is this, is this clear? When it comes to mourning, a person who's mourning for someone, the comfort of a mourner, one of the things we have to understand, and in Jewish tradition, we have a rule that you're not allowed to have a permanent sign of mourning. There are many nations, there are many religions, like the Shiites, for example, or Sunnis, I think it is, who mutilate themselves as a sign of mourning. I don't know if you've seen that. They, they, they cut themselves, they pull out hair, they do all types of bizarre mutilations. Why are we not allowed to do that, aside from the fact that it's gross, right? But why are we not allowed to do that? Because, Nachmanides says, we don't believe that the loss is a permanent, absolute loss. Because the soul is still alive. It's just gone from one body into another situation. It's gone from the body into a different reality. When my teacher, Moshe Shapiro, whenever he refers to someone who's passed away, 
he says, She'enenu chai itanu. I heard from someone who no longer lives with us. That's the expression he uses. Because to say he no longer lives would not be accurate. No longer lives with us would be accurate. He lives, but not with us. So therefore, the mourner is told, you know what, as easily as you take off your shoes, the soul leaves the body. And in that sense, the soul is still there. When you take off your shoes, your body still exists. When the soul takes off its shoe, it still exists. Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement, we approach God on a purely spiritual level. The one day of the year that we just totally ignore everything physical. Totally ignore the physical. We don't eat, we don't drink, no intimacy, no putting on a cologne or aftershave or anything like that. Right? We don't, right? And we don't wear leather shoes. Why leather, by the way? Because leather was once a body. Canvas wasn't. Plastic wasn't. Rubber wasn't. Leather was. Right? It was the body of an animal. Right? First person are being said directly from God to the Jewish people. So what the Jewish people heard on Sinai were three essential ingredients. A, there was an identification of who was speaking. It was God who took the Jews out of Egypt. That experience with him. They had, and it's interesting, you could ask the following question, which is actually asked by Kuzari, Rehuda Levi. He says, why does God introduce himself in that way? He says, I am the Lord your God who took you out of the land of Egypt. What, what should he have said? I, I don't know, what would be a better introduction? I am God who created time, space, matter, the universe, Milky Way, Alpha Centauri, right, red dwarfs, you know, giant stars, small stars. I mean, yeah, I mean, Egypt is relative to most of existence is a relatively small thing. It would be like if you're standing, you know, you know a famous architect, Frank Lloyd Wright, one of the most famous architects ever lived. Imagine you're standing with Frank Lloyd Wright in the Guggenheim Museum in New York. The Guggenheim was designed by Frank Lloyd Wright. It's a magnificent building. Beautiful. Now, if you can imagine the following. Frank Lloyd Wright was in college with you. So, when he just graduated from college, he helped redesign your basement. You have a Frank Lloyd Wright basement. Very impressive. Right? But he was 18 or 9, whatever he was, 21. He just graduated and... He then, he designed your basement. So you're standing in the Guggenheim, massive, beautiful, magnificent museum with Frank Lloyd Wright and at a cocktail party. Someone comes over to you and he says, so, how you doing, Mordecai? I say, fine. He says, who's your friend? I go, oh, sorry, this is Frank. He's an architect, Frank Wright. He says, oh, nice to meet you, Frank. What type of stuff has he done? So we're looking at, we're standing inside the Guggenheim. I said, my basement. You know my basement? He did my basement. If I was Frank, I'd be very upset. Here he is standing in the most magnificent building, one, I mean, beautiful building, right, which is designed by Frank Lloyd Wright, and what's he introducing him as? The guy who did my basement. So God comes to the Jewish people, and he says, I am God who took you out of Egypt. Did your basement, basically, yeah, it's the same thing. Why is he doing that? answer is, he wants to identify himself to the Jews in a very real, tangible way. No one was around when he created the world, there was no one there at the Big Bang. There was no one who experienced creation. Right? There was no one who can imagine it. There was no one who can wrap their minds around it. So it's not something which is tangible. It's not relevant. And it's not something which I can experience, and I did experience. Instead he says, you know what, remember you just got out of Egypt? It wasn't that long ago. Right? I am the one who took out of Egypt. 
That's something they can wrap their minds around. That's something they experience. That's something they can relate to. That's something which is part of human history. So God, that's what God says. And he is introducing himself. So that's number one they hear. Number two they hear this relationship is exclusive. He says, I'm the only one. This relationship is exclusive. And the third point they hear is, when I want to tell you something, it will be through Moses. Be through Moses. So this is what the Jews heard on Sinai. Now, Moses conveys to the Jewish people uh, the Ten Commandments. I, you can, I don't know if you can see them from where you are, right? But notice the Ten Commandments there, right? They're actually in Hebrew known as Aseret Hadibrot, which does not mean commandments. It means the Ten Statements. Now, how would you divide the first five and the last five? The first one is, I am God that took you out of Egypt. The second one is, don't worship gods of others in my presence, a prohibition against idolatry. The next one is, don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. The next one is, remember the Sabbath day. And the next one is, honour your parents. So what are the first five? Nope. How about parents? I think your parents would be very impressed that you're calling him God, but what? <laughs> okay, but that's not a great classification. But okay, the second, what are the second five? Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal the maximum theft, which is kidnapping, right? Don't take, don't bear false witness, don't lie in court, for example. And tachmod, don't covet, don't be jealous. So... The second five are very clearly between one person and their peers. They're like horizontal, you know what I mean? My relationship between myself and my equals, my peers, my peer group. The first five, relationship between myself and creator. Either my ultimate creator, who is God, or my parents, who are my more immediate creator. But your parent is never your peer. Even if you call them Stephen Carroll, right? They are not your peers, right? Uh, your parents created you. Right, so you've got, uh, you've got relationship to creator, relationship to peers. Okay, that's the two. Now, the truth is, a good friend of mine who was a used to be a professor of Bible, Johns Hopkins, Rabbi Foreman, has a very interesting theory here. He says the following, and I think he's right. He says the following. If you look at these commandments, really, there are only five principles here. But each principle has a ramification between you and your creator and has another ramification, hashlacha, right, between you and your peers. You understand what I'm saying? That really there's five principles, it's just, if you take this principle and apply it to God, you'll get this commandment. If you take this principle and apply it to your fellow human, you'll get this commandment. If you take this principle, is that clear? So there's five principles, each one, that's what the whole Torah is based on, these five principles. And if you can develop it further, actually each one of the five books of the Torah is based on one of these five principles. But let's have a look at what the five principles are. What would you say is the first principle? Keep in mind, on the relationship to God's side, it's acknowledgement God is it. I am God. What does that mean? What's that command me to do? I am God. What's that commandment? What does the commandment of I am God tell you to do? doesn't say worship me. doesn't say worship. Acknowledge. Acknowledge the fact. It's the acknowledgement of a fact. God is God. Took us out of Egypt, etc. Acknowledgement of God's existence. And what is, the, what is the other one when it comes to a human being? Lotirtzach, which means don't murder. So what is the relationship between those two? What's the principle? There's one principle here. What's the principle? Think of it in the following way. What is the ultimate, what's the exact 
maximum opposite of acknowledging the other is murdering the other. Can you murder God? No. What's the maximum you can do in terms of God? You can deny Him. A person could be an atheist. A person could be an agnostic. They could deny God. Right? But they cannot, you can't do anything to God. To a human being, I can ignore that person. That's on the minimum level. I can humiliate that person. It's a little worse. Right? I can hurt that person. I can kill that person. Right? So in other words, the principle here is, what's the principle? Acknowledge the other. Acknowledge God's existence. Acknowledge the other person's existence. So when it comes to God, the commandment here is, there is a God, believe in him. When it comes to a human, I don't have to believe, I can see you're there. But what would be the antithesis of that? Is making myself into a God who denies your right to exist. So to speak, which is murder. That's the first principle. The second principle, I think, is a little easier. What's the second principle? Well, between man and God, it's idolatry. Between man and... Well, here it's man and woman, but, but I mean, with your peer, it's lotinaf, which means adultery. Interestingly enough, what is the common, what's in common between idolatry and adultery? They're both the same idea. What is the idea? Right, it's, it's to, uh, let's put, put, it, put it in a little bit of a, I, I would say, in a more of a positive principle. Well, the first one, the first principle was the acknowledgement of the other. God exists, the other person exists. Don't deny God's existence, don't deny your friend's existence. The second one is, how would you put it? Betraying, betrayal. Well, betrayal. I would say it's, it's like this. The way Rabbi Foreman puts it is, sacred relationships. The relationship is sacred. In other words, I have a relationship with God. I, if I go around worshipping idols... That's a, you're right, it's a betrayal, it's cheating, it's all of that. It's a betrayal of the sacred relationship. Adultery is the same thing. It's a betrayal of a sacred relationship. Interestingly enough, the prophets always compare idolatry. When the Jews worshipped idols, the prophets always called the Jews as, be, as transgressing adultery. Now, the, I, the, the, the prophets always refer to us as zonim, in other words, committing adultery, so to speak. It's the same principle. So the first one is acknowledgement to the other. Second principle is sacred relationships. The third is easy, I think. Don't take the name of the Lord your God. Don't take the name of God in vain, meaning don't misuse that which is God's, his name. And what does it say here? Lotignov, don't. Strictly speaking, it means kidnapping, because that's the ultimate form of theft. Right? But it's the ultimate misuse of someone's possessions. Because what is my greatest possession? Is myself. Right? There's no, there's, no better, there's no greater possession of mine than myself. Right? My money and everything else is not me. Right? Kidnapping is the ultimate. No, can you steal from God? Not really. Everything, everything is His. But you could misuse His name. You could misuse His honor. So the third is sacred, I, I guess, the respect of possessions. Respecting what the person owns. Right, God's honor, his name, and the other person's essence, and the other person's name, and their essence, and their property. So that's the third. What is the fourth? Remember the Shabbat day, because the God, your Lord your God created the world. And therefore you are testifying to his creation of the world by resting on the seventh day. And what is the parallel when it comes to another person? Lotana beracha eid shakit, don't bear false testimony. Because you see, Shabbat is testimony about God's creation. 
and to the other person, or testimony, false testimony, lying to the other person. So that's the principle of truth. The, the word is sacred. The testimony, truth is sacred. So we have acknowledgement of the other, believe in God, don't murder. And all the things that, by the way, our sages tell us that under don't murder comes all of the offenses against the other person, against their dignity, against their body, against, right, all those offenses. That comes under don't murder. Don't steal, don't commit adultery, all the offenses under relationships. All of the offenses under relationships. Lotissa, relationship of us to God's name. Relation, uh, sorry, um, idolatry, relationship. Right? Then we have the misuse of God's name, misuse of other people's property, theft. Then we have testimony, testifying about Shabbat, testifying about other people's truth. In other words, how sacred is my word? How sacred is truth? And what's the last one? The last one's rough. The last one is, between myself and Creator, it's honor my parents. And on the, between myself and the others, it's don't be jealous. What's, what's that last principle? Think of it this way. I would say it's the flip side of the first principle. It's the flip side of the first principle. What was the first principle? Acknowledge what? Acknowledge, no. How do we define it? Acknowledge the other. Acknowledge the other. What's the flip side of acknowledging the other? No, no, not the opposite. The flip side, acknowledge myself. Acknowledge myself. Very important principle. When I honor my parents, what am I saying? You know, a lot of kids will walk around and say, look, Dad, when we go into this room, please don't, don't hover near me because they'll know that you're my father. Right? <laughs> you know, you know that, or kids walk around with a paper bag over their head because right, they're with their parents. They're embarrassed. What do you mean? Honor of parents means I acknowledge this is who I am. This is where I came from. I am proud of it. I'm happy about it. This is who I am. What does it mean that I'm don't be jealous of other people? When we're jealous of someone, it doesn't mean I just want that specific item they have. You know what it means? I'm not happy with who I am. I don't want to be me. I want to be someone else. I don't want to be me. I'm pathetic. I want to be someone else. Right? So the last principle is acknowledgement of the self. So those five principles, uh, each one has a ramification between myself and creator, ramification between myself and others. That's the core of the Torah. Why is it that this is what we got on Sinai? Because these are ultimately all of the commandments fit under these categories. Nachmanides has an entire book in which he shows how all 613 commandments fit under these 10. And it's called The 613 Commandments That Derive from the 10. It's a very original name, right? But that's what it's called. And what he does is he shows that all of the 613 derive from these 10. So these 10 are type like the table of contents of a book. You want to know what a book is about? You open it up, you flick through, you go to the table of contents, say, oh, interesting, talks about this, talks about this. This is what the Torah talks about. This is how we have to understand it. So those are some of the introductions. We didn't get through all the material. Some of the stuff about Sinai, we have A, turning your head to the side. Don't get so in the rut that you can never turn your head to the side and notice the beauty of the world and notice the greatness of the world and notice spirituality and notice God and notice anything outside your cubicle. Right, number one. Number two, we said there is what we called the idea of identification of the self as not merely physical, but spiritual. Taking off the shoe. And then we said there is humility. The idea of humility. And now we have five other principles that we got on Sinai. And those five principles to acknowledge the other, the other person. And that's why 
when Hillel was asked what to encapsulate the Torah, he says, that which is hateful unto you, don't do unto the other. In a sense, that encapsulates all of this, because what it says is, acknowledge the other, acknowledge the self. So we've got principle number one, acknowledge the other. Principle number five, acknowledge the self. And in the middle, you've got sacred relationships, don't abuse them. Don't misuse people's possessions. And tell the truth. Don't give false testimony. And, of course, also two was the other one, was sacred, sacred relationships. Yeah, that's, those are the three. So that's, the, that's a little bit of an introduction to what the idea is. Uh, one, more, one more point on Shavuot was also the anniversary of the birth of King David. King David was born and died on Shavuot. Now, it's type of interesting. The Medrash says the following. It says, there's a verse that says, Matsati et David Avdi. It's a verse in Isaiah. I found King David, my servant. Now, the Medrash says, God says, where did I find King David, who would become the Messiah? Where did I find him? Anyone know where King David was found? God says, I found him in Sodom. Heard of Sodom? Think about it. Where did King David come from? He comes from Sodom. God destroys the city of Sodom, and Lot and his two daughters escape. Lot and his two daughters believe, or the two daughters believe, that they are the only people left on the world. They therefore feel that they have to have children. They get their father drunk. Sordid story. They both have kids. One calls her son Moab, which means Moab from my father. Very Tsanua, very, you know, very uh, modest name. And the other is called Amon, which is from within our nation. So Moab, Moab, one of the Moabites, right, was a man called Eglon, who was an evil king descended from none other than Bilam. And he had a descendant called Ruth. Ruth. And Ruth converted to Judaism. And she married Boaz. And her grandson was, great-grandson was, King David. King David. So where was the Messiah found? I mean, you couldn't imagine worse circumstances. If you would be filling out, someone says, listen, um, I, I, I want to find you a shidduch, I'd like to find you a match. Could you please just give me, fill out your family history here, if you don't mind. <laughs> he says, okay, well, there was this little incident of incest um, going back a few generations. Uh, they lived in uh, Sodom, Las Vegas, whatever, right? My family lived. Um, then, uh, of course, this was followed by, um, you know, um, a lot of sordid stuff. Uh, there was some idolatry. There was murder involved in the family. There was there were a whole bunch of things. Eventually, my grand grandmother converted to Judaism, and uh, you know. <clears throat> so I mean, I don't know how many people would say, oh, "Forget this, forget this." Yes. All right. The truth is, if you think about it, you know, just about anyone in the Bible would fail a shidduch test. I mean, you'd have you'd have Yitzchak, Isaac, filling out his form. He says, "Yes, my parents uh, both grew up uh, amongst idolaters." Um, yeah, they, uh, well, my grandfather is, is manufactured idols. Yeah, no, <laughs> idols are us, right? And, uh, you know, it wouldn't look very good, right? My father tried to kill me last week, you know, my, that type of thing. But otherwise, he's fine. I mean, I don't know how it would look. So, so what happens is, it's an amazing thing. What is it, what is it teaching us? What, what is there? It's, it's so bizarre that it's got to be, I mean, what, it, it, you know what I mean? It's so strange. What is it teaching us? The answer is, and this will end with this, what it's teaching us is that the idea through Torah, we can take the lowest elements, the darkest parts of creation, 
and it can all be elevated, and it can all be turned into something beautiful. There's nothing within you which is so lowly, which is so negative, which is so bad that it cannot be elevated through Torah. No such thing. Right? What's the proof? Think of something worse than Lot and his daughters in Sodom. Right? I don't think anyone inside of themselves say, oh my gosh, I'm much worse than that, and if you are, please leave. Right? But, I mean, I don't think so. But the fact is, there's nothing within ourselves, there's nothing which is too low, which is too dark, which is too impure to be purified by the Torah. It's an important and major lesson we learn on Shavuot. We can take the most... And you know what we do? Shavuot, what happens is we're counting the Omer. What's Omer? Omer is, is animal fodder. So it's, it's considered, by, in, the, in biblical terms, it's the lowest form of food. Omer, animal fodder. Barley, right? It was, uh, so, you know, but on the other hand, we're taking that and we bring, we bring bread as a sacrifice on Shavuot. We are transforming everything, the lowest elements of all of creation... Absolutely everything can be transformed elevated. And what that means, forget all of creation, because that's too much for us to really worry about and focus on. Right? Just look at ourselves, and there are elements within ourselves which we look at and say, that's Saddam, and that's Lot, and that's this, and that's this, and that's this. Right? And we say, forget about it. Right? What this is telling us is there is no such thing. There is no such thing as any element within the self which is not redeemable. Because everything in the world is redeemable, and if everything in the world is redeemable, even Saddam then everything in yourself is definitely redeemable. And it, has, and it can be accomplished with Torah. That's why on all festivals there's arguments in the Talmud. Some say there's opinions that you should spend the whole day. Uh, some say it's optional whether you eat on other festivals. You can spend, if you want, the whole day just studying and praying. And some say it's obligatory to eat, but you have to spend half the day praying. On Shavuot, all opinions agree that you're obligated to eat on Shavuot. It's not an option. You cannot, if you want, spend the whole day learning and praying. You cannot do that. You have to eat. Why? Shavuot is telling me the Torah transforms everything. It takes even the eating, the cheesecake, and everything else. Right? can elevate it and transform it. And Rav Nachman of Bretzlov once said, he said that the only way you can ever elevate someone is if you believe that deep down they're intrinsically good. And he says the only way you can elevate yourself is if you believe that deep down you are intrinsically good. Made some mistakes. Many mistakes. Only mistakes. But I mean, nevertheless, but deep down, intrinsically good. And that can be elevated. And the lesson of Shavuot is indeed that. And that's what, why the Torah is always compared to fire. Because what does fire do? You put something in fire, it becomes fire. What you put into fire, it burns, it becomes the fire. And, it, and the fire always goes up. Right? So the Torah does the same thing. You immerse yourself in Torah, it's like fire. It elevates, it raises you up, and it can take even the lowest elements, the inner Saddam, and raise it up. That's a little bit of an introduction to what really happened at Sinai and Shavuot. Thank you very much for coming. I understand it's finals, so thank you very much.